we have Professor Phil Howard from the Department of Community Sustainability. He's an associate professor there. He's also a member of the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems. We're very happy and pleased that you could join us today to talk about a topic that we've uh, that's been of perennial interest, I would say, uh, to the to the uh, GES colloquium and to the GES Center. Um, I just wanted to provide a little bit, of kind of an interesting background about how uh, we got him here. So, John Godwin, I don't know if he's around, but uh, he actually sent us, uh, he sent me over the summer this New York Times op-ed called uh, "Save Our Food, Free the Seed," and um, let me go to the front of this thing. So, you know, it's, it's actually, as a New York Times article, it's pretty amazingly produced, the way they put it together and put all the visual, visualizations and stuff together. And so John was thinking we could get the author of this op-ed to come here. He was a chef, uh, Dan Barber, I think. And uh, as I was probing into the article, I realized all the interesting data was, not, was coming from this person. Uh, so, so I thought he would be the right person to, to come uh, speak to, to our group. So that's just, that's just how we ended up. Um, uh, with uh, the luckiness of, of having Phil here. So I think um, I also, the other thing I wanted to mention was um, he's done a lot of work on both on uh, the seed industry as well as craft, the consolidation of the craft brewing industry. So you can ask him about that either now or uh, in, that, in, the, in the lunch afterwards. Um, but I told him, given the extent of his work on this topic, that I just said 45 minutes. So you, most of you are used to 30-minute presentations in the colloquium. But I told him he could go for uh, 45 minutes. So just if you're starting to get antsy or wondering why I'm not cutting him off, it's because I told him he could, he could go into a little bit more depth here. So I'm going to pull up his slides and let you take it away. All right, there you go. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you all for coming here. Uh, so as you know, the seed industry has changed a lot in recent decades. So just to give you a brief example, all of these blue circles represent seed companies as of the beginning of 1996. And then these are those same blue seed companies 13 years later at the end of 2008. More than 200 all combined into just nine firms. So those nine firms are labeled there. The largest circles are proportional to sales. And red, that color represents chemical companies. So you can see at a glance that the three largest seed companies in the world by 2008 were also chemical companies. And the top four firms in both the seed, global commercial seed industry and chemical industry uh, more than doubled their market share over uh, less than 20 years to the point where even seven years ago, the top four firms controlled well over half of commercial seed sales and even more for chemicals. So I'm gonna talk about in more detail about some of those changes and then I'll briefly talk about these four impacts of seed industry consolidation and then these three drivers of seed industry consolidation and then I will conclude by asking what are the leverage points for change to address some of the negative impacts of these trends and possibly those trends themselves. So it seems like every few months there's a headline, uh, another big seed company acquisition. But even people in these industries um, often have trouble seeing the big picture because there have been so many changes. So at the end of 2008, I put together this graphic, uh, same color scheme, so blue, those are seed companies, red chemical companies. You'll see some yellow circles. Those are uh, other types of companies, mostly biotech firms. And you can see just how many acquisitions occurred from 1996 to 2008. Does anybody know why I started in 1996? Does anybody know what, what happened in 1996 to change the industry? Yeah. yeah, Roundup Ready seeds were introduced. These were patented could not be saved and replanted. And consolidation was already occurring in the seed industry, but it really accelerated at the beginning of this time. So I've updated this chart twice since then, every five years. So just take a mental picture of all those blue circles you see. And then we advance to 2013. You can see more have filled in. Now I want you to pay attention to those red circles. There are six, they call the big six chemical firms but I'm gonna to advance to the end of 2018, and now we've gone just four. And here are the size of the deals. So of course, Dow and DuPont merged to form Corteva. Bayer, or Bayer, if you prefer the German pronunciation, acquired Monsanto. 
BASF paid $9 billion for some of the seed divisions that Bayer was forced to sell as, as, uh, for regulators to sign off on that deal. And then ChemChina acquired Syngenta. So we went from these three, um, these big six chemical firms, three headquartered in the U.S., three headquartered in Europe. Now there's just one in the U.S., two in Germany, and one in uh, China. So zooming in on some of these other seed companies that are not agrochemical companies, you have Lima Grain of France, which has also been very active in acquisitions, and then a few by KWS of Germany and Cicada of Japan. And ChemChina has continued to make more acquisitions after acquiring uh, Syngenta. Another entrant into the top 10 seed companies globally is Longping High Tech, also of China. Even though there's a, a joint venture between them, both of these firms have a lot of support from the government of China to continue to make more acquisitions. Longping paid over a billion dollars for Dow's corn seed division in Brazil, for example. And then DLF of Denmark has also been making acquisitions. Another firm in the top 10 uh, is Rijik Zwan of the Netherlands, which is family-owned, mostly family-owned, and uh, somewhat 10% uh, owned, owned by its employees. Uh, they haven't made any acquisitions. They've just grown internally. So you might be wondering, why would chemical companies be interested in the seed industry? Actually, um, one reason is they were, their growth was slowing. Their sales were increasing after World War II, but by the 1980s, uh, they were challenged in finding new avenues for growth. So uh, it was logical to look at the seed industry, and even other types of uh, firms were looking at the seed industry, like oil companies and grain traders. Uh, but seed companies had, uh, chemical companies had an advantage is that uh, they had some of the same customers. Farmers that were already buying chemicals were also buying seeds. So farmers can't necessarily make their own chemicals very easily, uh, but with seeds, they could be more self-reliant. They could save and replant seeds year after year, particularly for, for some crops. So this kind of uh, created a barrier to the growth of seed companies. And in the 1980s, there were 7,000 uh, seed companies in the United States, mostly small and, and family-owned. Uh, but they become bigger and bigger because uh, seed companies have figured out ways to convince farmers to come back to them year after year to buy seeds. So Jack Hockenberg has a book called First the Seed, where he describes these two strategies in, in a lot of detail. One is a biological or technical strategy of hybrids. So if you develop a hybrid, then um, you, know, you can save and replant it, but it's not going to have the same yield as that original seed. So that gives farmers a strong incentive to come back to the seed company. Um, and this was very successful in corn, uh, and then later in sorghum. But other types of seeds like uh, soybeans and wheat have been more resistant to this hybrid strategy. So then the other strategy is a, po a political or legal strategy of increasing intellectual property protections on seeds and to make it more and more restrictive for farmers to be able to save and replant seeds. So I'm gonna talk about these impacts of seed industry concentration starting with prices, and really this is the most predictable impact of industry consolidation. Institutional economists suggest that when four firms control about 40% or more of a market, it's no longer competitive because they don't have to eat, gather in a room to fix prices. They can simply signal their intention to increase prices, and the others will follow suit. So you remember a few slides back that globally, the market was well over 40% for seeds and for smaller markets, it's even more concentrated. For example, in the U.S., for these commodity seeds, just two firms control over 60% of sales as of a few years ago. And then you can see the top four, that concentration ratio of the top four firms is even much higher. And we have seen seed prices increase during this period. According to data from the USDA, cotton seed prices increased over 500% and corn and soybean prices increased over 300%, and uh, this was much faster than the price increase, than inflation, and also uh, for the price increases for other inputs like fertilizers and pesticides. Another way that even those concentration ratios may underestimate the lack of competitiveness in this industry is uh, the common ownership by investment firms. 
This is a recent paper by Mohammed Torshizi and Jennifer Clapp, and they describe the increase in common ownership by firms like Vanguard and Fidelity to the point where by 2016, all, they had over 20% of the shares in all three of those US-based firms. And there's a concern that um, this is a further uh, incentive not to compete because if they um, you know, keep prices high, that's going to benefit these investment firms. And the model that they, they had in this paper suggests that 6 to 15% of those, those price increases, those 3 to 500% price increases, were linked to these common ownership patterns. So there are other ways that um, uh, prices are able to be increased, not just for seeds, but also to the chemicals that they are tied to. So Monsanto was uh, faced an antitrust lawsuit in 2007 because they had a, an extremely high market share for glyphosate even six years after they lost the patent. And even though the prices were three to four times that those generics. So uh, these are equally effective, uh, but for some reason farmers were buying this more expensive product. So this lawsuit was dismissed based on a clause in the technology agreement that all suits had to be brought to the court in St. Louis. Um, so they, they escaped this antitrust suit, but even years later, uh, the SEC levied an $80 million fine on Monsanto. Uh, they found that they were steering their seed dealers and pesticide dealers to convince farmers to buy the more expensive Roundup, even in uh, 2009 and 2010, a few years after that lawsuit was dropped. And this is occurring not just in uh, the patented genetically engineered seeds. Uh, way back in 2003, Syngenta introduced a hybrid barley, and farmers could only buy this barley if they also bought a Syngenta fungicide, because Syngenta said it was higher yields but more susceptible to brown rust. So uh, increasingly effective in tying proprietary chemicals, leveraging a monopoly in seeds to a monopoly in chemicals. Uh, and this is still occurring with uh, neonicotinoid coatings on corn seeds. Uh, it's very difficult for farmers in the U.S. and Canada to find seeds that haven't been treated with these chemicals, well over 90% for corn. Um, so it's, this is another way that uh, farmers are being steered into paying things that they may not need. There are some studies that suggest that um, you know, these, these coatings are not, not necessarily effective in all situations. So another kind of predictable impact is um, that uh, replanting and saving seeds, those rates are going to go down. Um, this is why um, uh, this is a way for, for the seed firms to become more powerful and steer farmers in the, into behaviors of buying uh, seed from them every year. So for example, Monsanto famously um, opened up hotlines where farmers could anonymously call in and report their neighbors if they suspected them of saving and replanting uh, proprietary seeds. Uh, farmers have faced a number of lawsuits. These are just the ones that went to court. Uh, a number were also settled out of court, uh, estimated that Monsanto received over $100 million as a result of those out-of-court settlements. And in some cases, farmers have even gone to prison. Cam Ralph on the left here, he, he spent a few months in prison for um, saving and replanting Roundup-ready seeds, even though he claims that the technology agreement that was produced in court was not his signature. He said it was forged. Has anybody seen the documentary Food, Inc.? Yeah, it's been a while, back in 2008. Uh, so you might remember the story of Mopar. Uh, this is an example of how the infrastructure for saving and replanting seeds is, is declining. Mopar um, was sued by Monsanto. They wanted him to disclose his customer list because they suspected he was helping farmers to replant their proprietary seed. So he refused, he went to court, and the court ruled that he had to send a load of uh, every, uh, a sample from every load of soybeans he cleaned to Purdue University to be tested to make sure it wasn't uh, Monsanto's proprietary seed. And increasingly these um, restrictions are being placed on um, seeds that aren't, don't even have full patent protection, but also they're trying to get more patent protection on uh, conventionally bred seeds. So here's an example 
from a decade ago, Seminus, which is a subsidiary of Monsanto, now Bayer, they uh, had this hybrid big beef tomato, and on the back was a technology agreement which says that by using these seeds, you agree not to save them, replant them, conduct any research on them, etc. So the next impact is declining diversity, and this is one that um, uh, this, this image you may have seen from National Geographic, uh, showing the decline in fruit and vegetable seed varieties from early 1900s to the, by the 1980s. And more specifically, uh, more recent examples, Monsanto formed a holding company called American Seeds Incorporated from 2004 to 2007, and they acquired more than two dozen Midwestern regional um, corn and soybean companies. And uh, most farmers didn't even know this was happening. If they went to their seed dealer, went to the website, there was no indication that it was owned by Monsanto. Uh, the example of Tristler seeds in Illinois here, before that acquisition, they offered 33 conventional varieties of corn. By 2009, a few years after they, they were acquired, they offered just three. And then since then, uh, as a result of consolidation, uh, Trisler and 56 other seed companies have been eliminated. Not just um, Monsanto brands, but other, other companies have eliminated these varieties. Another example is um, going, coming back to Seminus. Even before it was acquired by Monsanto, a uh, Mexican billionaire uh, created this, this firm by uh, acquiring a number of different uh, fruit and vegetable seed companies. Uh, and he borrowed money to make those acquisitions. So in order to pay back the money, he started slashing costs, including dropping 2,500 varieties from the seed catalog. And then the last impact I'm going to talk about is innovation. And this one is really contested. So for example, uh, an executive at Corteva says that 20 years ago, you only had one option. Farmers had one option for herbicide-tolerant soybeans. Now they have four. Uh, so he's saying that there, there's been innovation and there are more choices. And, you know, innovation is one of the claims that these firms make to regulators when they're making the case for uh, these buyouts. Uh, but I'm, I'm skeptical, and in fact, um, Bayer laid off one-third of his ag division shortly after acquiring Monsanto. And one of the reasons I'm skeptical is I'm trained as a sociologist, and there's a lot of research in organizational sociology that suggests that the larger and more bureaucratic the organization, the less likely there's going to be, there's going to be innovation. There are more and more layers of appro approval required, so innovative ideas tend to be stopped early on. And I think even the people who argue that there has been more innovation could probably agree that that innovation is very narrowly focused. For example, uh, I have colleagues Rachel Sherman and Bill Monroe who've talked to executives at Monsanto. Um, you know, they're very idealistic scientists working in the labs, but the executives are making decisions to fund uh, innovation based on the potential for profits. So they're looking for these blockbuster trades. And innovation has been narrowly focused on those, narrowly focused on the most, um, the most widely planted crops, so there are a lot of crops that are getting less attention now. Uh, here's an example from Joe Lauer at the University of Wisconsin. In blue, you can see where corn yields have increased over the, this period. And you can see a lot of it centered in Iowa and surrounding counties. But red, that's a yield decline for corn. So you can see um, you know, large parts of the United States where yields have declined. And, you know, Big firms have dismantled all their research investment in the southeastern United States, for example. So what's driving this consolidation? I'm going to talk about these three, starting with antitrust enforcement. Uh, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, we had a series of antitrust laws passed in the United States. Um, but those are interpreted very differently now. One reason is, when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, he uh, appointed heads of regulatory agencies like Department of, Justice, Department of Justice, directing them to be much less aggressive on antitrust enforcement. Uh, another really important change that occurred just before that, uh, beginning in the 1970s, 
you had um, changes in the judicial branch because a number of judges, um, there are these corporate funded think tanks that are associated with universities like George Mason, and they host um, these junkets, these all expenses paid trips to places like Florida and Arizona. So judges can go and they can play golf and go horseback riding and also sit in on seminars where they're uh, basically indo indoctrinated into Chicago School of Economics thinking about being less aggressive on antitrust. And these have been very successful. Uh, by the early 1990s, over two-thirds of federal judges had participated in just this George Mason program. Uh, and it became essentially impossible to win an antitrust case at the federal level. And they've only continued, even though there was a 60 Minutes expose about that back in the 90s, um, between 2008 and 2012, over 185 federal judges you know, participated in this George Mason program. And it's gotten to the point where uh, judges' views have moved so much that even if regulators wanted to you know, come back and be more aggressive, uh, they claim they cannot. So shortly after Obama was elected, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Department of Justice held a series of workshops around the country uh, including one that was focused on seeds. And in their report, they noted there are a lot of abuses as a result of consolidation in food and agricultural industries. Uh, but they said that because of the way the judges interpret the laws, their hands are basically tied. They can't take more action than they're already taking. So next is intellectual property protections. So we've had intellectual property protections on seeds for nearly 100 years beginning with the Plant Patent Act, uh, and then later we had the Plant Variety Protection Act, so these were patent-like protections on seeds. Uh, but there were exemptions so that farmers um, could save and replant seeds every year. Uh, those exemptions have been uh, you know, kind of removed over time, particularly by recent Supreme Court decisions, uh, to the point where even contract provisions are enforced beyond the first sale. So if a farmer uh, goes to their grain elevator and just buys some soybeans, plants them, and applies an herbicide, uh, they could theoretically go to jail for that, even if they never signed a technology agreement uh, with one of those big seed chemical firms. And uh, adoption has been very rapid for a lot of these uh, patented traits. So for example, uh, just a little over 20 years, uh, Monsanto's traits went from zero to 99% of soybeans, and then zero to well over 70% of corn, uh, and that's just Monsanto's traits. And public funding, this is from that New York Times article editorial last summer, uh, public funding has leveled off, but private funding has increased, and you can see the number of patents uh, that are being claimed has increased. Uh, I have a colleague at uh, Penn State, Leland Glenna, he's talked to executives at these um, see chemical firms, they're really concerned about this because uh, there's not enough funding for basic research anymore. All the funding uh, is focused on applied research, getting patents, and the, the, the foundation for making you know, innovations in the future is being eroded. So initially, these intellectual property protections resulted in a lot of conflict between those big six seed chemical firms. So in the late 1990s, early 2000s, there were all of these lawsuits flying back and forth. This is from Herb Jervis, a former executive at, at Pioneer DuPont. A lot of these were settled out of court, however, and uh, it was very common that in settling these disputes over who owned which intellectual property, they would develop cross-licensing agreements. So these big six firms um, created a web of cross-licensing agreements that they would share uh, patented traits with each other. They could stack a number of, the, number of them up in one seed, uh, but this created a pretty huge barrier to other seed companies that were not part of this group um, if they wanted to access these things that, that farmers were interested in buying. So you can see there were just a few gaps in this web as of 2013, and now that we're down to just four firms, there, there are no gaps in this web. And then last um, uh, is this technological treadmills. Why would farmers uh, pay more for seeds? Why would they buy seeds from these firms? Uh, you know, why aren't they resisting these, these trends a little more? 
Uh, one explanation is the technological treadmill. Agricultural economist Willard Cochran suggested that as technologies increase production, if demand doesn't keep pace, then you would expect prices to fall. So this works out pretty well for large scale and early adopters of new technologies that increase yields. Um, they tend to make more money. Not so well for small scale and late adopters. They tend to drop off this treadmill and get out of farming. But for the majority of the firms in the middle, they're simply producing more and more every year just to receive the same income. And there's pressure to constantly adopt new technologies, expand acreage, and so on. And this treadmill rests on uh, some input treadmills. The most well-known is the pesticide treadmill. As you begin to apply more and more pesticides, the susceptible pest populations go down, and you have to increase pesticide applications every year. There's also a seed treadmill where the more you purchase seeds, the, the more you lose the ability to save your seeds, whether it's legally uh, losing that infrastructure or just the knowledge of how to save and replant seeds. So what this means is that farmers end up spending more and more every year and passing that money to seed, chemical, fuel, and machinery corporations, even though their incomes have been stagnant for decades. Uh, but then the money that's being made by these industries keeps increasing. So finally, I want to, I think I'm going to maybe get in well under 45 here. Uh, what are the leverage points for change uh, addressing some of these impacts? Um, these trends haven't been unopposed, um, but the, resist the resistance is very small and it's, it's kind of hidden. Uh, so for example, that, that biological strategy of hybrids, that can be resisted by farmers and gardeners who plant heirloom seeds. These are seeds that express the same traits when they're, they're saved and replanted. So for example, the Baker Creek Seed Company sponsors an heirloom seed expo in Santa Rosa, California every year, uh, which is getting bigger and bigger, attracting over 20,000 people. And they also produce this big uh, glossy catalog, uh, and they're sending it to more and more people. Now over a million farmers and gardeners receive this catalog. And even though Baker Creek is tiny in comparison to Bayer and uh, Corteva, it's still growing pretty fast. And uh, in fact, they've expanded from their original location in Missouri to acquire um, seed companies in California and Connecticut. Another um, strategy that's being contested is that intellectual pro property protections. So the Open Source Seed Initiative, which started with some professors at the University of Wisconsin. Their original idea was to take uh, the, the model of open source software and apply it to seeds and to kind of create a legal barrier to saving, you know, to putting patents on seeds. Well, they got, brought the lawyers in and realized that was way more complicated than they thought it would be. So they scaled back and they just have this pledge. It says, by using these seeds, you have the freedom to use them any way you choose, but you agree not to restrict others' use of these seeds or the derivatives by patents or other means. So uh, this is growing uh, a lot. There are 66 different uh, small seed companies that are partners in the Open Source Seed Initiative. Uh, they've introduced hundreds of new varieties of seeds with this pledge. And this model has also been adopted by um, uh, researchers in Europe. And uh, Advocates of public research are organizing and making the case that there needs to be more public research. So uh, here's a quote from Bill Tracy at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Stephen Jones, a wheat breeder at Washington State University, is another uh, outspoken advocate. And they've had some small successes in getting uh, public funding for some of their efforts, uh, focusing on things like improved uh, taste and nutrition. Um, there, there, but there's been even more success in Europe scientists there have uh, convinced the EU to put a lot of money into increasing seed diversity, for example. These trends are also resisted in the market. So there are um, firms that have resisted buyout offers. Here are two of the largest, Stein of Iowa and Bex of Indiana. But there are about 100 corn and soybean companies that remain in the US. And they still have about 22% of the market for soybeans and 20% uh, for corn. Uh, so by refusing to be acquired by these big firms, they're helping maintain that space uh, where there's some more competition. Another example on the market is uh, this effort to increase uh, transparency. 
the farmers business network uh, it costs farmers a few hundred dollars a year to join uh, but in return they get access to come to information on seed company relabeling so companies will sell the exact same seeds under different names and sell them at different prices so farmers who know about this can find the cheapest variety they also have price information from across the US so if their local seed dealer is, has a price that is higher they can get them shipped from somewhere else in the country where the price is lower there are also political efforts to address these trends uh, on the left is Cory Booker who recently dropped out of the presidential race uh, but he introduced this bill uh, co-sponsored by John Tester on the right to halt ag mergers now this is uh, based on a model of legislation that Paul Wellstone introduced over 20 years ago and it has absolutely no chance of passage but um, it is raising awareness of these issues and getting more people talking about them uh, in, in the European Union a number of groups organized to try and block Bayer from acquiring Monsanto and ultimately they were not successful uh, but they did delay regulatory approval um, took a long time and it's, they likely increased the number of divisions that uh, that Bayer had to sell to the other German chemical company BASF as a result so uh, you know, these big firms have uh, not really been challenged with antitrust regulations uh, or uh, private antitrust suits uh, but they are facing uh, liability particularly Bayer uh, there's a lot of lawsuits right now around Roundup and glyphosate and uh, the alleged health impacts of exposure to that uh, it's affected the share price it's decreased dramatically over the last year and then now they're facing another lawsuit from a peach farmer in Missouri who uh, says he was affected by drift from dicamba from their dicamba resistant soybeans and uh, here's that uh, editorial by Dan Barber which reached millions of people so it's helped increasing awareness of these issues so uh, people who may not have had any idea of all these issues I just talked about are learning about them and also uh, presumably trying to find ways to support the values that they agree with so the question is um, are all these efforts uh, going to do anything to uh, address some of the negative impacts or reverse these trends it doesn't look very promising at the moment but things could change very quickly so if more people come become aware of these trends we might have uh, broader networks being formed more pressure on governments to do something more alternatives created and in that case then we will start to see some of these address thanks So thank you, awesome to get some background on this. I'm not in the, in the agricultural field, but with all of the extension services, and again, I'm not sure exactly what those are from public universities like North Carolina State University that uses evidence-based, does that produce some type of resistance towards long-term sustainability to farming, farmers and farming families? I'm not sure I understand. So, uh, you know, we, we have extension agents that, yeah. are, you know, I, I, would, I would think go out and look at cost-benefit analysis of getting new machinery and, and that, um, I guess, what do we call it, a um, uh, neutral observer, the, the good faith person in the middle that really looks out for the farmer and food production in North Carolina and the same for Wisconsin, the same for Michigan. These, these extension networks is that a buffer towards some of the trends that you're seeing that could steer them towards more sustainable it can be practices. I mean I think one thing that I've been looking at recently is dicamba mm -hmm. and some of these firms the lawsuit is is producing a lot of internal documentation that says the companies knew there were going to be, be problems what they actually did was they introduced dicamba resistant soybeans the year before they introduced a formulation that was supposed to be more less less likely to drift but they also did not allow weed scientists and extension agents to do a lot of testing before it was released so uh, you know a lot you know there were weed scientists at Missouri and Arkansas that came out saying there were problems with this um, and this, the companies did their usual strategy of uh, you know, trying to dismiss these claims but um, 
Yeah, weed scientists were not happy about this. Um, you know, they're used to um, having a lot of the same goals of these companies. Um, they're used to seeing themselves on the same side. So when the strategies that these firms were being used for, you know, very clear opponents were being applied to them, uh, they push back. So, you know, Arkansas, for example, put a temporary ban on uh, dicamba. Uh, so what the companies do, they went to the EPA and said, states are not allowed to have, wow. have their own regulations. So, yeah, I think, I think definitely uh, extension can play a role there. Uh, yeah, back there. Um, great, doc, great talk, Dr. Howard. Oh, thanks. Um, I particularly like your historical sociograms showing how the consolidation um, over, the, over the decades. And I was wondering, um, you talk a lot about um, negative impacts, especially on farmers at the production level. Um, but I was wondering um, if you could offer any further comments on how these consolidate, how this consolidation pattern might affect, um, have ripple effects um, outside of that, like um, production level at the farmers' um, situation, and um, what kinds of issues we might face moving into the future in this century, in you know this climate-changing world. What effects does this seed consolidation, these seed consolidation practices, potentially have outside of the farmers' concern? Yeah, I mentioned diversity, but I didn't go into a lot of detail on that. But it's a real concern that, um, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, we had corn blight in the U.S. because uh, the genetics had become very uniform. And so then there, there was more awareness of the need to have diversity. Uh, but because we haven't experienced something like corn blight to that extent, uh, you, know, you know, these companies forget about it. And they... they um, you know, they're going with what's most um, profitable and cost-effective for them, and so they've consolidated research. Um, they've cons focused their breeding efforts on specific areas, so uh, we are seeing uh, less diversity, more uniformity at the exact time where we probably need to maintain uh, some diversity to be able to deal with the challenges of, of climate change, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, maybe the need for other, different types of production systems that aren't uh, so tied in with um, you know, synthetic chemicals, for example. I mean, you see yeah. a specific example of that, Corteva. Um, they, <clears throat> they had some readers in their system that were, they called them germplasm breeders, and the idea was to bring in new genetics. <clears throat> they had four programs. They fired all four of those breeders a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. It was a big update. <laughs> There's, there's an excellent report on the WSSA, Wheat Science Society of America website, on dicamba and the first registration of dicamba. You have to go to the website and then you have to look like look for the document. The first author was Lee Van Wyken. I'm the second. Okay. There's five of us. Basically, we force EPA to make a review environmental chemistry of dicamba prior to the re-registration of 2018, which it's coming up again. And the suit of the peach guy is the tip of the iceberg. That's mm. a valid suit. Wow. Great. Thanks. Um, so I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to your arguments, but I want to play devil's advocate on two, two questions. So one is, um, when you talked about the price increases for seeds in corn and soybeans, those seeds now um, embody technologies that might reduce costs for farmers, whether that's labor or additional inputs. And so is there a way to separate out the price increase and the value that goes into the seed? Um, and the second devil's advocate question is, um, with genetic engineering that requires a different kind, kind of um, you know, regime to get it through regulation and things like that. Is it possible that we could have had, we could have maintained a decentralized seed industry and, you know, taken advantage of these technologies? Or was it required that we see this kind of consolidation to navigate the intellectual property that went along with this technology and the sort of regulatory costs and things like that? Because you could, you could argue that making and selling seed is very different than it was 40 years ago. So the, for the first question, yeah, the seed companies always make the case that they're offering a value to the farmers. That's why they're willing to pay more. But they also will set the price to what the farmer can bear. 
So the price was well beyond the value added, if you know, from a lot of farmers' perspective, because they could they could do that in the market, and particularly by steering farmers through seed dealers to the traits they wanted, um, limiting the supply of you know, conventional seeds or seeds with just a few traits, and they have to buy the stack traits with those higher prices. Um, so, and we can see very clearly when commodity prices leveled off. Uh, those price increases did not continue. You know, they're still introducing you know, you know new new trades, but they're basically taking what the market can bear because they have the power of an oligopoly to do that. Um, the second question, I think I would evade your question a little bit by going all the way back to when we had so much public support for the development of hybrids, which helped these these private companies, uh, you know, keep farmers coming back year after year. Jack Koppelberg makes the argument that if we had put the same public investment in uh, heirloom open pollinated seeds, even in crops like corn, we would have had the same yield gains. I, I don't know enough about breeding to say whether he's right or wrong, but I think it would be an interesting to think, thing to think about uh, if we had not, through intellectual property protections, helped these companies become so dominant. Um, you know, would there be as much innovation in a decentralized system, and would there be any, would there be a need for that much bureaucracy to navigate? I mean, I think it's the the bureaucracy is, um, you know, the companies actually behind closed doors may admit they like the fact that it's so expensive um, because that creates barriers to smaller firms. You got a question here? Yeah, just a comment um, on what you just said that they will adapt their price confirming what farmers are. Um, they want to pay or they can pay. Uh, in Brazil, we had, uh, in the past, we had uh, non-BT corn being like half price of BT corn, but because the yields were so high for the non-BT, farmers, they kept just buying it, and then nowadays, it's just like about the same, the price. So that means just not not just the technology. But uh, growing going from that, um, I have two questions. One is um, if you have ever I've looked at the grower's perspective, because in Brazil, uh, for soybean, we don't have limitations or restrictions, policies for them to don't replant their seed. But from my experience, we still buy seeds from companies, let's say half uh, of total, because these seeds, they have a higher quality. And they will, I mean, for both like mechanical damage from harvesting and also for uh, pathogens. And a lot of growers, they buy, they like to buy the seeds because they will guarantee a better profit in the next year. And other question is about the price increase, because uh, like what Jason said is, so we have this like a similar graph with uh, yields increasing over time as well for uh, cotton, corn, and soybean. And also we have the same for the price of these commodities going up. And I wonder what are the other factors going in these calculations of the, the seed of the price besides commodities and the, the higher yields, the higher technology. Yeah, unfortunately I haven't talked to enough farmers to, to fully understand the perspective. Um, in Brazil, for example, the enforcement capacity is not like it is in the U.S., so it's, it's hard to um, prevent farmers from saving and re replanting Roundup Ready seeds. So uh, the big firm solution was to tax the grain collectors. So Cargill, um, you know, has to pay uh, an extra amount that goes to a firm like Monsanto uh, because that, that enforcement system is not like the U.S. where, where farmers are going to prison. Uh, and I just, I just don't know enough about how uh, seed companies make these price calculations beyond um, I mean, you can see uh, from, from the, a few slides ago that the prices are different in different markets because uh, that's what the market will bear. And I, I also study supermarkets, and supermarkets are now testing individualized prices. So nobody is actually going to pay what price is listed on the shelf. There might not even be a price on the shelf anymore. They're going to um, just figure out from your loyalty programs, your, your cards, what price you're going to pay, and it's going to be different than the next person who buys that product. So. Um, but I, I, mean, I think that's that's what these companies can do when they get to that scale. Yeah, back there. Uh, breeding programs still exist in, in uh, 
universities like Michigan State and NC State, how has their role changed as the seed companies um, for grains and for other um, food crops uh, changed the way you described? Yeah, I'm not probably not the best person to answer this. Uh, my colleague Leland Glenno would be great because um, he's he's talked to all these scientists and executives, but. Uh, because of the Bayh-Dole Act, universities now have an incentive. Um, you know, they can co-own a patent. Um, you know, if if uh, a researcher develops a, something new, um, the, the university can commercialize it, license it to other firms, and make a lot of money from it. So, that's how it's it's steered um, the incentives away from basic research. And then, because public funding has been level, um, you know, it, you, people don't. Uh, take risks in research as much as my understanding because they're focused on getting those blockbuster profits and universities become and you know administrators become dependent on that income and uh, so now to talk about taking away by dole and bringing back you know the broader public interest uh, it would be very challenging because there's so many vested interests in that system now yeah just to um, piggyback on the comment about saving seed in Brazil, I am familiar with the situation with wheat here in North Carolina and um, the extension program here at NC State uh, has a strong recommendation to farmers that they not save wheat seed and that they buy certified seed every year uh, for quality reasons like you were saying in Brazil. But anecdotally, I think people estimate that nearly half the wheat acreage in the state is actually farmer-saved seed um, acreage. And I don't think anyone has ever really studied, it would be interesting to know if there is enough of a quality difference to, to pay for uh, the systematic use of certified seed. That would, that would actually be a, a useful question for extension to study, but I think there is pressure probably for that question not to actually be stuck, um, coming, coming from on high, and that has to do with the way the uh, university is administered. Yeah. yeah, and that's about what the rate for soybean seed saving was, around 50% before Rounder Ready Soy, and now it's well below 10%. Yeah, in the back. Have you looked at or found um, whether CRISPR and gene editing as a kind of tech platform with its own kind of IP context changes modifies much of what you said? I'm not an expert on patent law, uh, but my sense is that basically these companies are making broader and broader patent claims and now you don't even need, you, you could do conventional breeding and make a patent claim if you have a good case. So uh, there's a great article called Linux for Lettuce. I don't think you need a good case. Yeah, so. but, in, in the, <laughs> but in the European Union, they apparently initially granted a patent on extruded broccoli, uh, a claim that was denied in the U.S., but that claim was immediately appealed. So the, the patent examiners are under constant pressure to you know, grant broader and broader claims uh, and to put more and more restrictions on you know, whatever technology is used. It doesn't even have to be genetic engineering anymore. They just they open the door and then widen it out. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to comment on Adam's question. I, I don't, you know, I think this would be a great thing to study because I've made the argument, and I think erroneously probably, that CRISPR will democratize things more and allow smaller um, producers to um, be able to put products on the market. But if you look at what's gone through the MI regulated process, at first you were seeing a lot more diversity, but now it's tending more towards corn and soybean and herbicide tolerance and the same kinds of traits that we saw with the first generation of GMOs. I just looked at the database the other day at the 81s that have gone through this process and it seemed diverse at first, but it seems now a lot of the MI regulated are tending more towards these same kind of bigger egg products again. Hmm. So I, but I think it would be a great thing to study. That's just anecdotally from looking yeah. at what's gone through right now, so. Yeah. You talked a little bit about this uh, open seed initiative, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, open source. It was started by, um, it was started by um, a couple of academic researchers, you said, in yeah. Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And then you showed us this bigger network of other similar types of I was wondering if you had a sense of, in that larger network, um, what kinds of, are the relationships between those sort of like open source initiatives 
um, the relationships between them and the universities are they present? Are they strong? Like, what do they, what do they kind of look like? Uh, I don't know a lot. I mean, I know um, a lot of those small C companies are focused on um, seeds for gardeners, organic certified organic seed. Uh, a lot of them are involved in the Organic Seed Alliance. So, um, so some of these researchers at Wisconsin are also, um, like their grad students, may get a master's degree and go work for the Organic Seed Alliance. Um, you know, there are foundations like Cliff Bar that are funding uh, you know, public breeding in Wisconsin. They're about to open up a new institute in California for organic uh, seed breeding. So. I haven't looked at the networks in detail to know like uh, how formal and informal they are, but um, yeah, a lot of these smaller seed companies are you know helping uh, with trials and things like that. Yeah. Is there any connection between the consolidation of the seed industry and the expansion of the size of individual farms in terms of consolidation of farms <laughs> by companies as opposed to just Farmer Joe down the street? Yeah, do you want to take that? Oh, yeah, it's virtually absolute. So, okay, so I'm nominally a weed scientist on trains and agronomists. If you look at the limiting factor in many operations, it tends to be weed control in one way or the other. So what we're looking at here is neither God nor the devil. It's like a railroad. So the railroads opened up America and they created commerce. They also beat up everybody and took right away and stole from people, okay? That's what you're seeing here. It's a powerful technology, it's a driver, and it does have structural effects. And the people that invest in it are going to use that as an instrument of power to acquire more wealth. Now, one of the effects is if you eliminate the principal allocation of labor, it frees up your organization to expand. That's exactly what happened, for instance, even in this state with Roundup Ready anything. Why did you buy it? So I could go to the beach on the weekend. Okay, and the effect was to reduce labor input and to expand farm size. As a matter of fact, when we're looking at the other side, potentially problems with weed control, one of the first effects would be decrease the size of operations, which will affect margins, because most of them run on a 2 to 3 percent margin. The backup could be serious. Just to add to that, you know, these seed chemical companies are struggling to increase sales. That's why they collapsed from 6 to 4. They're not seeing other growth opportunities to, for, for internal expansion. Uh, one of the concerns that, that me and my colleagues have is that the big machinery companies are going to buy up some of these uh, seed chemical companies, so then they're going to control the box that has the big data, the seeds, the pesticides, uh, everything. And they're, they're going to focus their efforts on the larger scale farmers. Um, you know, with proprietary technology, the farmers can't even repair those tractors themselves. Yeah. Oh, he, he hasn't gone yet. Thank you for your presentation. And I'm curious if in the perfect world the power of the companies was sort of checked. I'm curious if farmers were the ones now having this power in the food system. What sort of concerns should we sort of be looking at? Like if farmers were the ones that had the power in companies. Well, I think you can make the case that for certain seeds, you know, as recently as the 1980s, um, you had all these 7,000 plus seed companies. It was a very competitive market. There was innovation. People could make a living, but they couldn't make a killing. So, you know, they weren't publicly traded corporations increasing their, their profits every year. Uh, but there were spaces where you could make a comfortable living operating a seed company, supplying local farmers. And you know that if you raise your prices too high, those farmers could go to another small seed company. So I think, um, you know, without things like re you know, reinterpretation of antitrust laws and increasing intellectual property protections, uh, we wouldn't have this situation. Yeah. Can you give this talk out and about with these ideas? 
Um, are you ever surprised by the reactions you get? Like, I would imagine people see this, you lay out the, the case pretty strongly, and this is a problem. Does anybody like, no, this isn't a problem? Um, yeah, some economists like the arguments about efficiency and innovation, and they think that um, that the, those corporations make a good case for that. Um, one funny story is that what actually, you know, sometimes I get asked if I ever get um, hear back from these firms that they don't like what I'm doing. It's actually the opposite. I, I used to get emails from executives at Monsanto asking me when I'm going to update that chart. And I think it's because they can keep tabs on their competitors that way. So, yeah, I'm like nervous that they're going to be mad that I got some detail wrong and they, they just want me to update it. My name's Hope Shand, and I work with um, a group called Setter Group and my colleague, Kathy Jo Wetter. And um, we've also been trying to monitor some of these uh, trends in corporate concentration in big food for many years. And I just wanted to mention that in the last time we did this, um, we were trying to do new industry rankings based on 2018 figures. And for the first time, we've been doing this for a really long time, for the very first time, we couldn't come up with reliable figures on concentration based on corporate reporting. And we are seeing this trend more and more that it's getting harder and harder every year we do it to get reliable figures, either, if, either because it's proprietary information um, seed analyst and other big companies that do this kind of um, these assessments we they won't talk to us they won't even in some cases even sell us stuff and um, I just wondered if you're seeing this same kind of trend and how it's influencing your scholarship um, I think you mentioned a couple of cases where your colleagues or other academics had done studies where they talked to um, officials in, com in many of these companies and my experience is we can't even get those people on the phone. I mean really it, it's impossible and yeah. it didn't it wasn't like that 20 years ago. It was really easy to call up you know a researcher and talk to them about what they were doing and kind of what they how they thought it was going, why they were doing it. And not not in an adversarial way, yeah. you know. So anyway, I'm I'm just curious if, if you've seen some of those trends. Yeah, definitely. I study a lot of different industries, and in all of them, I'm seeing the same thing. It's harder and harder to access information. It either doesn't exist, or it's behind very expensive paywalls. And you know, regulatory agencies are not tracking this either. Um, so we're all in the dark, increasingly, as a result. question here. Um, I wonder if you could maybe explain further um, why when these companies uh, feel like they're running out of areas for growth, um, I, I understand why you might also want to sell tractors for wheat, um, but why would it, why would they not look at, you know, the, the third biggest crop, you know, uh, why wouldn't some of these ignored crops be an area for growth instead of getting ignored more and more as the companies look for growth. Yeah, I think um, the system gets kind of locked in, so they do the cost-benefit analysis and probably see there's not nearly as much profit to be made in you know, a very small crop as there is. You know, allowing yourself, if you're a seed company, to be acquired by John Deere and get you know, tens of millions of dollars uh, in payout, I mean, that's, that's an incentive for executives in these firms if they you know, Monsanto tried to buy Syngenta, they were rebuffed, and then Bayer made a, a nice offer and the executives got their golden parachutes. And um, So that's, that's what you see, is it's, that's an easy way to growth, uh, is to just bolt on another closely related industry. It's much harder uh, to do all the, you know, the research and, and marketing and trying to create a new market that doesn't exist. So one thing I didn't talk about, I'll mention super briefly, is Co-optation. Sometimes our efforts to create alternatives uh, are just opening up spaces for these big firms to swoop, swoop in, like craft beer. 
some of the biggest craft brewers in the U.S. are now being acquired by Anheuser-Busch InBev and other big firms. So uh, when you're trying to create alternatives, you have to be careful that you don't do too well and, and attract some of these big yeah. firms. <laughs> All right, let's give Professor Howard